Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eurasia Chat, a bi-weekly discussion of hottest topics in Central Asia. I'm Alisher Khabidov, a journalist based in Bishkek, and my colleague, Aigrim Pleuhanova, is a Kazakhstani journalist. Today, we have a special guest in our episode. It's talented independent documentary filmmaker Aigul Ajiva. Uh, she has focused a lot of her work on gendered violence and on social and political issues in Kyrgyzstan. And we are very glad to have you, Aigul. Hi, guys. I'm really happy to be here with you. And of course, I'm ready to discuss actually any topic <laughs> interesting for you. Thank you. Alishar, actually, can you remind us what are the topics we're going to discuss today? Yeah, again, we're going to talk about three things. Uh, first, we're going to talk about our views about uh, Russia's war in Ukraine one year after. Then we will talk about Tajikistan, where for years Tajik government have been trying to compel citizens to de-Russify their last names, but such attempts were not popular and successful because Tajik people uh, were not that much happy to change. So we're going to talk about how things are changing now with the war. Then we will talk about Uzbekistan, where young bloggers are complaining about increasing state stranglehold over students uh, with the Ministry of Education issuing an informal order to control young people's political behavior. Okay, uh, thank you, Alishar, for reminding us about the topics. I wanted to start uh, the conversation about the work that Aigul did because I'm familiar with her work as a journalist and documentary filmmaker. And when I first saw some of her documentary movies, I was really touched because one of the movies that I saw was about the girl called Burulai. Uh, it's a sad story about bride kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, she has done a really touching movie about it. So uh, my question is, Aigul, as you are kind of, you know, covering this social issue, can you tell us what are your observations in the recent years in Kyrgyzstan? Has the situation with bride kidnapping improved? And what, what do you think in general about gender-based violence uh, in your region? Yes, thank you. I, I agree. This is quite important question. And seems like despite all the efforts that I've taken to stop or prevent violence against women in Kyrgyzstan or in Central Asia in general, there are still terrible cases where girls and women are hurt, harassed, or even killed. For example, just recently, a woman with two kids was killed by her partner, who was former worker at State National Security Committee, for example. And this is, in my opinion, this is a complex of reasons why it is still happening. Uh, there is a culture of shame, early marriages, lack of education, mentality, and so on. In my opinion, the prevention work should be fo should focus on men and boys as well. And experience has shown that tightening legal rules to more strict penalties of bride kidnapping is insufficient as well. So I don't know, we have to unite efforts again and to raise this topic again and again. And actually what, what journalists and human rights defenders continue to do. This is like good news. Filmmakers, for example, upcoming Monday, uh, there will be a showcase of a new criminal drama, which is called Who is Next? Based on a true story that happened with the, with the girl Aizada, who was also kidnapped, raped and killed in 2021. So, and regarding the format, documentary is, in my opinion, is quite good and quite efficient uh, in terms of raising these kind of issues. 
Can you tell us more about the story that you did about Burulai for those listeners who don't know who she is? Why did you decide to make this movie? What was her story? Who did you talk to? Yes, Burulai, she was a 19-year-old girl who was like uh, studying in medical college and she was planning to be a doctor and she lived not far from Bishkek and she was quite positive in terms of her future plans and and unfortunately kidnapped by a guy who was uh, about 30 or 35 year old from Bishkek as well they knew each other but several times i mean according to her parents several times she refused him but he didn't listen to her so uh she wanted to continue to study and she had really great plans for the future but unfortunately uh the story is sad because he kidnapped her and then he killed her stabbed her to the death in the police office this is like really embarrassing case in my documentary it was like uh, dedicated to one year after this case has happened and uh, there was a court but unfortunately the process was quite long her parents they were disappointed with the court decisions and uh, because the policemen uh, in particular they they were not punished you are actually one of the few brave uh, documentary makers who are investigating uh, cases of gender-based and domestic violence uh, could you please tell us more about the causes of domestic and gender-based violence it's this uh, type of violence has been on the rise what are the causes for the rise in gender-based violence in Kyrgyzstan and maybe in central asia Yes, as you said, bride kidnapping, I mean, at least according to experts, bride kidnapping is linked to domestic violence and human trafficking and goes against Article 16 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's a criminal case according to our legislation, but still it happens and uh, a lot of people link it to our traditions, but it's not true. So, I don't know, it's a complex of reasons in my opinion. It's too difficult to difficult, yeah. search to explain yes and probably it should be solved on different levels from different perspectives i think we need to educate people more i mean to promote tolerance and respect in general among each other there is lack of kindness in general and i really like the idea of kindness because it's quite strong and you can start anytime to practice it you can start from yourself you don't need big budgets or like some genius solutions let's say what i've noticed what i see here for example in in kyrgyzstan there is a lot of aggression among people and in general probably in developing countries perhaps i don't know people try to survive and there is a huge gap between poor and rich and social fragmentation is very common maybe this is one of the reasons so if we start from ourselves if we begin to be kind to each other maybe it's one of the solutions i don't know maybe i'm too <laughs> philosophic but yeah no I'm no, no. i think uh, you're on the spot there is this uh, claim that uh, gender based violence existed for a long time in the region and it was proliferating it's just that over the past uh, recent years there's been more coverage more documentary makers like you more journalists uh, are uncovering this this problem so that's why we see this rise in the number of cases would you agree with this kind of uh, view absolutely yes i actually wanted to ask igul about uh, the state of documentary production in kyrgyzstan and central asia so there is this view that uh, documentaries are not much popular in in central asian region because 
those who produce it are mainly governments that produce them for propaganda reasons. So independent documentaries are in short supply and they are in, in poor quality. Aigul, what can you tell us about this whole thing? I don't agree with this opinion uh, because what at least what I see in Kyrgyzstan, uh, the documentary format is very popular and widespread among independent journalists. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, upcoming Monday there will be a presentation of criminal drama, also dedicated to to the real story of Aizada, who was kidnapped and killed. So those who actually produce documentaries, mainly they, they are women, and um, I don't know why, by the way, maybe they are more sensitive, but it's really observable. And also there is another format, genre, let's say, that is widespread among Kyrgyz media makers, filmmakers. It's investigative journalism as well. So probably, yes, pro-governmental production studios or TV channels, they produce also different content, but I cannot say that they do more than independent ones. It was very interesting to hear that, but I wanted to ask you, one question that was is not actually related to your documentary filmmaking, as we with Alisher wanted to cover the topic of one year anniversary of Russian invasion into Ukraine. We just wanted to hear from you what were your thoughts during that day on twenty fourth of February. Uh, what were, were you thinking, and what would you think where it would go? Yes, sure. Yeah, time flies. Uh, and yes, as you said, it's already one year from Russia's invasion. But um, I was in Italy when it happened. I was completing my master's degree. And I was quite like, <laughs> I mean, it was kind of escapism for me because, of course, I tried to follow all the news from our region and in general. But, but of course, I couldn't like um, stay calm, let's say. And also, it's too difficult for me because I have friends in both countries. I talk to each of them and I try to support them. And as a journalist as well, I'm, I, I understood that I have to be, say, objective. But it's too difficult in this situation to, to be too objective. Also, I'm trying to think how, what kind of impact we have here in our country as well. Because um, there is a lot of misinformation, fake news, and propaganda, of course. It's difficult when you live in society when people are really influenced by propaganda, by Russian propaganda. Especially, I mean, also it, it's very close. It's, it's your relatives, for example. And uh, you try to stay more or less uh, balanced, but not, I mean, I'm not successful, <laughs> I guess, not all the time. Alisher, can you share your thoughts? Yes, uh, I was shocked when that happened. I was in disbelief for a few days. I have a lot of friends in Russia and Ukraine. And seeing uh, the two countries go into war, it was just a big shock. And I remember taking this taxi and this driver, he told me, hey, can you tell me why these two Russian people are fighting? And I told him that, look, they are not Russians. There, there is on the one side, there are Russians. On the other side, there are Ukrainians. And he said, to us, they are all Russians. Why are they fighting each other? So I, I kind of was disturbed by that view. But then I thought, 
wow, these two countries, they're so culturally close. They're like so much, there's so much ethnic uh, closeness and they're fighting. So it makes sense that people here in Central Asia, they're in disbelief. If two Slavic people, they fight each other, what would they do to other like nations in the former Soviet Union? Like, so concerns about implications for us, for Central Asia, especially for Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I still am concerned that these two countries are in a considerable danger of being attacked by unpredictable and unbound Russia. Why Uzbekistan, though? Were there any claims from Russian officials that um, some parts of Uzbekistan belong to Russia or something like that? I think that Uzbekistan as a country and as a region has long been a jewel, uh, so-called, in, in Russia's Central Asian colonies. Uh, as a territory, it's, it's large, it uh, has a, a large population, it's got a lot of natural resources, and it has a long uh, Russian history. You know, Tashkent was an imperial city in, in, in the region, it was an important city, so Russian government has long like seen Tashkent as, as an important ally, but also uh, unpredictable allies. So the relations have been strained for, for a long time. So Tashkent would be an, a target, a, a definite target for Russia, yeah. Also, I want just to add one more thought, Agirim, to your question. I mean, one of the impacts or I can see on myself, for example, I, I've noticed that I started to use English more as my main language, let's say, when I'm posting something on social media. And also when I came back to Kyrgyzstan, I've noticed that I would like to learn my language better, let's say, because I would prefer maybe in the nearest future to talk Kyrgyz and English more than Russian. I love the Russian language, but I don't know somehow I feel that I need to, to speak my, my native language more than Russian now. And I can see this mood among our local people as well. And maybe it's, it's a good change towards our own history, towards our own traditions and identity. That's actually spot on because for me as well, in terms of Russian language, it's widely used in Kazakhstan, but I also notice that a lot of young people, especially, they want to learn Kazakh language. Uh, because for many, Russian language is now associated with the language of aggressor, um, because it was Russia that started invading Ukraine, not the other way, way around, or not like they were just, you know, out of nothing or started fighting. So, yeah. And if you ask me about what I was thinking, nobody asked, but I will tell anyway. I think... It was it was really bad day because I haven't recovered from January events in Kazakhstan, which were very traumatic for everyone in Kazakhstan. And then a month later, there is this Russian invasion into Ukraine. And I was like, well, I guess this can't be worse. It's like, you know, first pandemic, then January events, now um, this war. All the bad things already happened. And I was really in a low mood and um, have a lot of Ukrainian friends as well, because I used to, I actually had internship in Ukraine, in Kiev, in some um, media outlet. And it was just terrifying to see how all of my acquaintances were hiding in bomb shelters. It's It has a big impact on the region, I'm sure, this war, unfortunately, 
probably is going to last longer than we all hoped for. And I don't know what will be the future security concerns of Russia being involved in Central Asia and in which way they can be involved. So we will see this in the future. In recent years, the Tajik government adopted a series of decrees and orders to compel their citizens to change their Russified names as part of a broader efforts to protect national identity of Tajik citizens. And many Tajiks quietly resisted such derussification attempts because changing names involves a variety of legal inconveniences and practical hurdles for them, particularly for Tajik labor migrants in Russia who have to deal with strict Russian migration authorities and employers. But with the start of Russian war in Ukraine, which we discussed recently, the Tajik government's initiative actually acquired a new meaning and a degree of popularity in Tajikistan. Ahead of this podcast, we spoke to Eurasian Net's Dushanbe correspondent on this subject. The correspondent talked to us on condition of anonymity because of fears of potential official repercussions. Alishar, can you share briefly what they told us? Yes, uh, the correspondent told us three things. First, uh, that in 2007, Tajikistan's president officially changed his Soviet-era Russified name, Imam Ali Sharipovich Rahmonov, to Imam Ali Rahman. Uh, at the time, the move caused bewilderment in Central Asian capitals and Moscow, but the Tajik government stated that this was part of the government's broader effort to revive traditional names and raise the country's national consciousness. And then hundreds of government officials followed Rahman's example, according to our correspondent in Dushanbe. The correspondent also told us that citizens were not in a hurry to change their names, despite various threats by the government and promises of incentives. So the thing is that changing names was a cumbersome process. For example, uh, it would cost up to 3,000 Tajik Somonis to change uh, one's name from Soviet-era uh, Russified last name to Tajik one. So, And as you know, most uh, Russified names end with uh, uh, suffixes OV for men and OVA for women. So in Tajikistan, it would be like a Zadeh, Zoda, Nuri. So it would end in different suffixes. Actually, in April 2020, the Tajik government had it enough. So they adopted a law banning uh, Russified surnames in new identification documents and birth certificates. And the law particularly applies to newborn ethnic Tajiks or ethnic Tajik children receiving identification documents for the first time. So they've uh, included some provisions for non-ethnic Tajiks and Tajik nationals with pre-existing Russified surnames who choose to keep them as old ones. So they're exempted from uh, laws covered. We're talking about ethnic Russians, Uzbeks, and those Tajik nationals who are happy with their uh, Russified endings. Our correspondent also told us that in 2016, the, the Tajik parliament passed another law, which means uh, that the uh, Tajik nationals must have to choose names for newborns from a list of government-approved names. And choosing names that are alien to Tajik national culture is forbidden. So the correspondent told us that there are about 3,000 names from which we have to choose. That's uh, ridiculous. So that's why a lot of people were unhappy about government's uh, uh, name change initiatives. But 
the correspondent told us that uh, with the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and with a lot of fears uh, emanating from potential Russian punishment against Tajik government for not supporting the war, a lot of citizens, they are now availing themselves of these uh, legal provisions that allow them to change names. And they are changing, actually. A lot of them are changing because they want to be identified with the Tajik culture more so than with their Russian like uh, surnames. Alisher, I think you and I both have kind of Russified last names as well, right? Uh, ends with O-V, O-V-A. Have you ever thought of changing your name to different, like, like your last name, deleting this O-V ending? Yes, I wanted to become uh, Alisher Cruz because I love uh, Tom Cruise. But uh, there's so many legal difficulties here in Kyrgyzstan you know, when you want to change your name. So it's a pain in the neck. But I agree. It seems like what's happening in Tajikistan is, is what Igul, our previous uh, guest, told us about, you know, this uh, aspirations of people or their emotions. Uh, she told us that after the war, she wanted to speak more Kyrgyz. So it seems like in Tajikistan and in Kazakhstan as well, there is this a desire to affiliate more with national cultures and consciousness than with their Russian heritage. Is this something that you see as, as the trend? Yes, I think it's also kind of part of, I don't know, maybe psychological defense when you feel that your identity might be threatened, as you can witness from this Russian invasion into Ukraine. You kind of try to preserve it as much as possible in my case, I also have this Russified last name, which I actually tried to change, but nobody listened to me. I, I wanted to change my last name to Toluhan when I was 16, when I was getting my first official documents. But the lady, when I told her to get rid of it, and she was like, oh, sorry, I didn't hear you saying this. So here is your document. <laughs> so after oh. that, I was like, damn. And now it would take too much time and as you said legal hurdles to change everything all my diplomas all the state documents everything else so i kind of gave up our dushanbe correspondent told us also that before the war they were very much against tajik government's initiatives to uh, eradicate soviet era influences in tajikistan for example the tajik government was demolishing old Soviet-era buildings, like two-story, three-story buildings known as Khrushchevki. So uh, the correspondent was angry. And then after the war, however, the correspondent said that they uh, became kind of more understanding of Tajik government's efforts. And the correspondent mentioned that uh, they support, actually, the, the recent uh, initiatives of the Tajik government. Yeah, it seems to be the trend in Central Asia. There is this news in Uzbekistan that uh, students will be assessed based on their political behavior, right? Or w what was the case? Can you tell us more about this? Yes, uh, I agree. The Ministry of Education in Uzbekistan issued an informal decree that was distributed among universities that basically assigned uh, or obliged uh, university rectors and uh, university administrations to compile lists of students and divide them based on their political reliability and behavior. 
So in list A, that would be those who would be reliable and whose political and just generally behavior would be exemplary. And then in the list uh, B would be those who would be deemed by the administration as unreliable or whose behavior is questionable. So uh, this informal order has caused uproar among bloggers in Uzbekistan, many of whom are students themselves. And so they saw this order and they've seen efforts in Uzbekistan to control youth through these uh, kind of uh, so we know that in Uzbekistan, they still have the Soviet-era organization like Kamolot, uh, uh, which is modeled after Soviet Komsomol. So I think that there, we see this trend, new trend in Uzbekistan, where, whereby young people, mainly bloggers, who are getting really tired of state stranglehold over young people. And I see that in other countries as well, in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan as well. So you, you studied in Kazakhstan, right? Do you remember how you were part of the system? I mean, my university was more or less, let's say, free, but because I studied journalism, uh, actually our rector did not like journalists because he always said that journalists always complain and ask too many questions, and now he's in jail. So this is karma. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah. So you're saying that but even in Kazakhstan, there are efforts by the state to control youth through these uh, structures like universities? I mean, yeah, it's just so normal that I never actually questioned it. Uh, but it wasn't like we have this official organization like in Uzbekistan uh, that assesses people. It's just coming from administrative level where the um, deans or the teachers or the rector would say, oh, you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't express your views on that, you shouldn't go here or there and something like that. But it's not like official institution that is doing these assessments and these orders on students. Even though I think in some universities in Kazakhstan, this might be the case. I was just studying in, let's say, more Western-oriented university, but not really... I, I had this really mini model of the authoritarian government when it comes to mm-hmm. journalism, because when we decided to open our own magazine in, in the university, it was also very much censored because they were like, what if you write something bad about Nazarbayev mm-hmm. or other uh, officials, even though we just wrote about student parties and nobody ever covered politics, but people were in the administration were a bit uh, scared, you know. This has been Eurasia Chat Podcast with your hosts Alishar Hamidov and Aigirin Tolyohanova. Subscribe at Eurasia Net and wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.